everyone, and welcome to another episode of Religion Prof Podcast. I am very happy to uh, be able to introduce you all to another of my Butler University colleagues, Ankur Gupta, who is in the uh, computer science department, and with whom I've ended up collaborating on a project. And I think that people who know me and know my research interests are probably still surprised that I've met to branch out as far afield from the study of religion, and in particular ancient texts, to something involving computer science. And there are lots of stereotypes out there that people in the humanities and people in computer science probably don't even have a lot to talk about. But we've actually been collaborating. We had an article uh, come out recently. We have also done some uh, conference talks and brown bag lunch at our university campus. And we're looking forward to taking this show on the road further afield and into other venues, as well as continuing to write and talk about it. But I have to say some of the most fun, not that it's not fun to write about it, but the conversations have been really engaging. And so let me introduce you all to Anker and uh, give him a chance to say how this whole thing got started, because really he's to blame um, and he was just kind enough to make me the person that he uh, decided to talk to about this and invite to get involved in this interesting collaboration. So welcome to the show, Anker. It's it's new, and hopefully you'll enjoy the conversation today as much as uh, we've enjoyed past conversations. Right. Um, hello, everybody. Um, it's uh, uh, great to be here on the show, and uh, I it's uh, going to be an interesting experience. Um, as James mentioned, we are working on some projects together um, that sort of hit the intersection of philosophy and religion um, and computer science um, in what might not seem like a very intuitive way, but once you think about it a little bit, it's the only natural way to, uh, to proceed. So the, uh, the topic is broadly speaking about something called artificial wisdom, uh, which you can think about as an extension of artificial intelligence uh, to also include whatever thoughts we have about what wisdom is and whether or not computers can accomplish that, represent it, think about it, or uh, execute that idea. Um, the conversation started because actually a few years ago I um, had been chosen to study the definition of wisdom by the John Templeton Foundation from the perspective of computer science. Um, and I had developed, uh, among other things, uh, a, um, uh, a metaphor for it uh, that applies really strongly in the computer science era. Um, but uh, aside from some technical papers that talked about this relationship, and uh, there was a humanities piece of this that was missing uh, that I wasn't really prepared to tackle. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot that's been done. And so that part of that project sort of sat in the background just waiting for the right collaborator to work with. Um, and James and I met uh, at lunch one day in, on happenstance, and I just mentioned this project to him, and he was very excited about it. And I said, I'm looking for some kind of partner in crime. And he said, that would be fun. And so that sparked a conversation about uh, what kinds of people we can run over with driverless cars to all sorts of other stuff. Um, and it is wound around in very interesting ways. So that's kind of how this started. Um, and it's been a roller coaster of interesting ideas ever since. 
um, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what we can come up with next. So. Yeah, and I feel like I should say that you know I hope that someday you will find the right collaborator, but I'm glad you're working <laughs> with me in the meantime, uh, and I really am uh, enjoying it. Um, how could we help people understand you know a little bit more about what what we mean by artificial wisdom? I mean, if we think about the difference between intelligence and wisdom in the realm of human beings, then there are obvious examples probably from our line of work, right? The stereotypical professor who is intelligent but not wise, right? Has no practical uh, capacity to navigate some very basic scenarios and yet seems chock full of information. Um, is that a useful metaphor or analogy to what we're looking at in terms of what an intelligent machine, robot, piece of software could do uh, either today or in the near future versus what it means to talk about machine, uh, computer, robot wisdom. Um, well, that's a very multifaceted question. I think I think uh, the first approach that you would take when you're trying to address the question of what's the distinction between artificial intelligence and wisdom is to first recognize that even in a human-only component, the idea of what intelligence is versus wisdom is is somewhat complicated um, and I, I think that most people attribute intelligence to some form of logical conclusion drawn from knowledge uh, or data uh, that is fairly deterministic in other words it's not going to change um, necessarily depending upon the context uh, wisdom I think uh, incorporates something that's a little bit more fuzzy than that. It, it includes uh, a wealth of past experiences. It's supposed to be contextualized. There's this notion that age leads to greater wisdom or the experiences that you have somehow inform wisdom to be better or worse for a particular individual. Um, I think one of the interesting challenges from a computer science point of view is that the notion of intelligence and wisdom is actually getting blurred. Uh, it's not a strict line because in many cases computers can consider a number of different contexts simultaneously and contextualize the informational result that they give based upon a context which is much more akin to wisdom than we are typically willing to think about. Um, I, I can't think of an example offhand but there are lots of scenarios where you might have this kind of situation where a computer could simply enumerate, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of contexts and have a correct answer for each one of them that's data-driven. And the question is, as a collective, is that wisdom or is mm. it just advanced intelligence? Mm. Yeah, the example that comes to my mind from the human realm is that, um, you know, it, it only took intelligence on my part to ask you a question, but if I'd been wise, it wouldn't have been as multifaceted and annoying and uh, <laughs> had so many pieces to it that I hit you with all at once and made it um, less fun to answer than a, a clearly worded, simple one might have been in that context. Right. right. Um, so we've, we've been talking about driverless cars and um, you know, uh, the possibility of them running over people like um, Confucius, Socrates, and Isaac Asimov. Uh, we we brought Jesus into the picture as well as uh, Star Trek and right. <laughs> things like that. Um, 
you you got funding, and I I knew this uh, from our earlier conversations from the uh, John Templeton Foundation. Of course, they do a lot that relates to uh, religion, spirituality, wisdom, uh, this kind of intersection. Uh, did you see this? Did you envisage this taking on a a religious component and having a in the sense of having a a collaboration with a religion professor uh, as you were thinking about it, or was it just somewhere in the humanities, most likely a philosopher or somebody like that. I mean, did you, did you have any sense that it would veer like a, uh, like a, an out of control driverless car in the direction that it did? <laughs> uh, I didn't. Um, and I think that's more because I didn't know where what I had been working on would hang in the humanities as much as I had decided that it's definitely not religion. That wasn't the case. <laughs> Um, or that it was definitely philosophy. Um, I mean, in in brief, the the topic of my uh, work with John Temple, the Templeton Foundation, was about um, uh, compression as a metaphor for wisdom, and it was a it was a highly technical thing. Uh, there was a prop- proposal there that uh, data compression is essentially the equivalent mathematical measure for wisdom in a computing environment because you can ignore you know pesky things like the context and the human component and uh, those sorts of things and you can focus on more um, more issues of the actual information that is conveyed that you consider to be wise Uh, for example you have millions of sensors surrounding a volcano and you're trying to evaluate is it going to erupt Um, And one could think of that aggregation of data as intelligence, or you could think of it as a way to summarize um, a a wide series of data points in order to make a projection about the future. Is that common sense? Maybe, maybe not. But that was essentially the fundamental component of that particular uh, process. And then, you know, I introduced this concept of what timely wisdom is, because wisdom that is given even in a human environment that takes, you know, 15 years to discover, in many cases, isn't very useful. So there's this notion of usefulness that derives from um, a temporal sense of when the wisdom comes or not. Um, so, I mean, what I just described hits all sorts of areas of of the humanities, right? It hits philosophy, it hits psychology, it hits sociology, it hits religion for sure. It kind of depends on which angle you want to approach those uh, presumptions with. And, you know, I mean, we don't know if the things that I proposed are right, but uh, we certainly know that uh, they were amusing enough to, to deserve some exploration. Yes, and that's if there's a difference between uh, computer science and the humanities is that if by the end of an article, a chapter, maybe even the whole book or whole project, we still don't know if we're right, uh, that's normal, right? Uh, whereas in your field, you run the code and either it works or it doesn't. Yep. Uh, is that a fair <laughs> uh, comparison? Yeah, or you prove yeah. it or you don't. Yeah. Or I mean, you make some... It's very concrete, right? In yeah. computer science, you either yeah. establish that it can be done and do it, or... You prove that it's possible and you just don't know how to do it yet, or you have neither of those and it just doesn't work. I mean, you know, um, you typic- there's typically no ambiguity once a result is reached. There's 
no subjectivity to it. There's wide agreement that the result is either correct or incorrect. <coughs> Excuse me, because it's based on mathematics. So. Yeah. And of course, as somebody who teaches in the humanities, it's always interesting to have students in class who may be much more used to either the natural sciences or math or computer science. And so there's a discussion of an ethical issue or the interpretation of a text, and they want to know what the right answer is. And of course, things are not that simple right. in the sorts of uh, fields that I tend to work in. Yeah. But I think that has made our conversations all the more interesting, precisely because we're trying to cross, we're trying to talk across those uh, differences of, of method, of perspective, of what's normal and typical in our fields, and discovering that we have a lot to learn from each other. And as somebody who's interested in so many different things, uh, you, you and I have talked about enough different things for you to know that I'm easily distracted. Right. <laughs> uh, that's one reason why I thought I may as well podcast, because if I just touch from time to time on this or that thing that I'm interested in, there are enough things there, and they connect with enough other things that I could keep going for a very long time, uh, for better or worse. One of the things that... I think is a direct application of wisdom in our time is, of course, how to use the internet wisely when looking for information. And as I try to stay up on that field, both because of my interest in technology and my interest in the internet, but also because I'm interested in student research and the propensity of students to find really, really dubious things about uh, Jesus or the Bible or any other number of uh, subjects, by Googling them. I've also been reading lately that there's this effort to find ways to put in place things that will sort of pre-filter, right? And of course, our minds do that as well without us knowing it. You know, we're not seeing all the, uh, the ranges of the spectrum of light. Our mind actually excludes from our conscious awareness things that are right in front of us. And... Yet the prospect that we might put in place consciously uh, something that would stand between us and the internet and get rid of some of the noise, I think is an interesting one because that would be an effort to create something that we hope would be wise as well as reflecting our own wisdom in terms of finding sources. And there's a sense in which I think that's one of the areas that we're going to be exploring at some point together that relates fairly directly to this uh, um, this language of wisdom as compression, right? Because really what that's doing is filtering out some of the noise and trying to get, find the essence. And I, I do want to say now before I forget, because I might forget later, that I remember when you first said wisdom is compression, I was like, hmm, I'm not sure I know what to do with that. And then I started thinking, and of course in biblical studies, the example of wisdom par excellence is the proverb. And what is a proverb but compression of a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, some information that you want to pass on to others, turned into something that communicates it you know, as quickly and as effectively as possible. And so I think there are lots of, lots of interesting points of intersection, you know, both at the level of metaphor, but also in terms of some of the practical things that computer scientists are trying to accomplish when it comes to the wealth of data that's on the internet, and what people like me teaching in the humanities hope might be in place that might filter out some of the noise and uh, curate 
those things. And of course, curation is one of the things that makes the difference between a library and something like Google Books, where it's just all there, right? right? And in the past, we've relied on librarians and their wisdom, as well as knowledge, to, to guide people through that. Is it realistic to hope that machines could learn those skills, perform some of those tasks, not to replace librarians? I hope that won't happen, not just because uh, if the li- they come for the librarians, they'll come for the professors next, <laughs> and our jobs will be on the line um, right after those theirs, if not sooner. But to the extent that we can automate and you know facilitate things, it oftentimes frees up uh, the bandwidth of our minds to focus on the deeper questions that the machines can't automate, right? Is it realistic uh, to expect that machines might do some of those things? Um, I ask not least because if not, maybe we should stop what we're doing and focus on something else, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's realistic for machines to do something like curate a collection of texts <coughs> for some purpose. Um, it's interesting whether or not that's actually a wisdom-related task uh, because, you know, for example, I, it depends on the curation. If you're saying, I want only books by women in this library, for example, that's really easy for a computer to do. So it isn't so much the specific categorization that you're talking about, but how much that categorization actually lends itself to be interpreted as something involving wisdom as opposed to something involving intelligence. Um, Yeah, and that actually, you know, relates, I think, directly to uh, the sort of of scenario that I encounter every time I assign a research paper. Um, So I have students who are going to be working on coming up with an outline and bibliography, and regularly what I find in the bibliography are the things that showed up in a library database or library catalog search based on keywords that they thought were relevant. And yet I, looking at some of the things that they've come up with, immediately spot that some of those, while I can figure out how they ended up in the search results, have nothing to do with the topic that they're proposing to look at. Right. right? The students without that experience in the field may not spot that as easily, or they may have just done it the night before or the, the minute before class it was right. due and not had the wisdom to, uh, to filter their own results, whereas maybe they were capable of doing that better than they actually did, right? So there are any number of um, aspects to it. But all of those relate to wisdom in some way, right, and curation and the, the ability to figure out what's relevant and... Um, Advertising is certainly um, exploring that and coming up with things that either are or maybe are not some of the times. When it gets it wrong, we notice it very, very strikingly, right? But it certainly is doing better than I think many of us probably who are old enough to remember the early days of computing might have ever thought would be possible in our lifetimes. Um, And so, yeah, from your perspective, uh, seeing more of, you know, seeing at least as much um, online advertising, I imagine, as I do, but also being involved in some of the programming and processes that uh, support that kind of technology, uh, what can humans learn from the effort to program machines with these abilities? Where are the the points at which humans might need to uh, say, thank you very much, I'll take it from here to the machine and... Uh, apply some 
wisdom that, at least for the time being, is likely to remain uh, unique to human beings? Uh, that's an interesting question, and I think it goes right back to the difference between intelligence and wisdom. Um, to touch on the point that you mentioned about the, the student who had curated uh, some sources and maybe some of them were or were not relevant uh, or they didn't did or did not have time to look at it, um, the notion of timeliness appears there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of relevance is something that may really relate to a domain issue. Let's say, for example, that somebody's doing a Google search because they want to find out something about the latest news that just recently broke. Um, You have to, as a human, reading all of the material that's available to you, you have to account for the fact that people have different opinions and perspectives on a topic, and they may be genuinely attempting to state their position and that position is contradictory to someone else's so you have to sort of wade through all of that to determine what the truth of the matter is right which is typically considered to be a journalistic quality but essentially we're all being forced to be journalists in this sense Um, and that's not necessarily so easy and then there's the issue especially now in today's landscape the concept of what is truth Um, which is a fundamental question we've been asking for years and years, but the fact that it's so concretely being discussed in so many different avenues today suggests that it really does force us to consider the source and consider our own opinion, and we have a predisposition to agreeing with things that already sound like things that we agree with, you know. Um, Yeah, so in in view of that, is there some hope that maybe machines can do better than we do that I mean machines are involved software is involved in uh, putting us in our own bubble to the extent that we click like on something and then that it says would you like to see more stuff like this and then it shows us more and it becomes a feedback loop but presumably since we 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 do that of our own accord right in our circles of friends and have historically done that even you know uh, before this technology existed is it realistic to think that maybe technology could also uh, serve as a counter to that and provide uh, regular uh, regular poking at our bubble, <laughs> as it were? It already does that. Um, you may not think of it from the perspective of interaction on social media, where you may, for example, decide that you are a liberal or a conservative, and then it'll show you more of the same. Your friend suggestions will include results from more of the same and that sort of thing. Um, But this idea of bursting your bubble, if you will, um, is very common. And it's in a place that you wouldn't necessarily even attribute to the idea of whether or not you have some uh, qualitative decision to make, which is where wisdom tends to be more related. Um, Just think about, for example, uh, product recommendations on an online shopping site. When they're saying you might also like this, Sometimes, and and I shouldn't say sometimes, very often they'll present you three choices that they are saying have a high correlation to things that you have liked in the past. And then there's a fourth thing there just to see. Hmm. And the reason is because they're trying to grow your buying patterns, right? That's exactly what they want to do. And so they'll say, yeah, we don't really know if you're going to like this, but we're going to show it to you and see. And... 
that's your that's bursting your bubble in that mm. sense, right? Like you may not ever think that you're interested in item Y, but maybe it sounds interesting to you at that moment for some reason, and then they make an association and they use that to funnel your experience to try to get 10,000 other people to click on the same thing. Uh, that happens regularly. Um, yeah. Technology messes with all of our predispositions on a regular basis. Um, and it even finds out stuff that uh, we haven't admitted to the world. Hmm. So uh, there's a very famous historical story about uh, a, a young woman who was pregnant um, and she hadn't told her parents, but uh, uh, the Target store had started sending mailings with coupons for diapers and breast milk and all of this kind of thing. Um, and her father got very upset and went to this Target store and complained, why is she getting all of this kind of material, only to discover a couple of months later that, that in fact, she was expecting. Um, and that's the result of a learning algorithm. You know, there was something in the background that said, you know, we have the experiences of a million women, and when they start buying things like this, that means that this is a high likelihood of, you know, either you're thinking about it or uh, you're actually expecting, you know, sort of thing. So uh, it's, again, that divide is really very interesting. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and that's really one of the places that we're interested in uh, going next with this project. Um, because two things that you've mentioned, I think, uh, show some, you know, uh, have some interesting connections, and that's, you know, with exactly what we're hoping to explore next. One is that, you know, you highlighted profit as a motive for bursting our bubbles, right? right. And this notion that, you know, while certain things we may take comfort in, you know, isolating ourselves from other things, uh, the profit motive may run counter to that. And sometimes that can be a, a good thing in as much as it's, it's forcing us to at least consider other options. Um, if it's not profitable, though, to uh, show us things from other you know, political perspectives, other economic possibilities, other sources of information, then uh, will that cease to be offered to us because you know, there's no money in it? Um, we're more likely to you know, stick to the same. And then thinking about the example you gave of the the divulging of a, a pregnancy, essentially, through marketing that was driven by an algorithm uh, leads to the other aspect of, you know, sort of where we're going next, which is the question of blame and how blame is, you know, apportioned. And an algorithm is really a tool, right? It's something that we, uh, we use to accomplish something. It's Unlike other tools, though, in as much as we're giving them increasing amounts of power and autonomy uh, to do all kinds of interesting things. And historically, our tools have been uh, blame-free, right? And there's been some truth to the, 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 the slogan, even if we don't think it uh, is appropriate to quote it because of the way it's used. But, you know, there is some truth to the idea that guns don't kill people people kill people, right? Because our tools, even if they're tools that were designed for killing and that are very dangerous and maybe shouldn't be around um, in the numbers that they are, you know, couldn't do anything on their own, right? It took a human being interacting with them, right? And 
we know to look out for cars because we've become accustomed, and so we don't have to put a warning sticker on every single car in order to make ourselves aware of that. But now that we have driverless cars, right, the idea that you could look and see no one in a car, step in front of it, but it might not stay still nonetheless, is getting us into this area where our tools are at least somewhat autonomous, right? Even if they're not smart yet, even if they're not wise, um, they're going to start challenging our wisdom to legislate about them. But they're also going to challenge uh, people in your field uh, as much as in mine. How do we program them to act in a way that we'd consider wise and ethical right, as part of our society, given the amount of autonomy that they have? And if someone is hit by a car that was following programming of that sort, but in a way that no particular individual had directed it to, right? who's to blame? Can we ever blame the machine itself? Or is it always a programmer? Is it always the owner? Is it always the person who stepped in front of it? Uh, and so that's the topic that I think we're most likely going to be exploring next. Uh, what are your thoughts from the sort of computer science perspective on, on where the, that technology might be headed? What's interesting to talk about in relation to that? And why should people look for the next thing that we uh, write, publish, or talk about uh, when we get to it? Um, I think the uh, question from a computer science point of view is uh, how you develop an algorithm to interact in the world. So. Typically, when you're talking about designing an artificial intelligence that drives a computer or that drives a car, um, you're, you're trying to say, okay, I have a model of the world and I have a list of actions that I can take in that world um, and I will know the goal states, I'll know the result of taking those actions in the world within a model because I can then model the resultant action within this framework. Um, and so from a computer science point of view, you can imagine yourself as designing that the world is in a state and then there's some action that acts upon it and then you're in another state and then you have some action that acts upon it and you're in a third state. This is fairly straightforward as long as the model represents a closed loop system. And what I mean by that is there are no external influences. The model is a complete representation of everything that can happen in that environment and that there's no ambiguity about the actions that are taken. Um, a really good example of that is basically any game. So think of chess, checkers, go, all of these have a fixed axiom set. You can fully describe everything in the world, which is the board and the pieces. You know how they move, you know how they act, you know how they behave, and taking an action yields another object in the state. Where artificial intelligence starts to falter is when the model cannot be a uh, high fidelity representation of the real world. And that's in every circumstance where machines now are forced to act in the real world because there are unexpected things that you can't account for. Um, there are unspecified bits of information that you can't deal with. 
sometimes uh, when you're interacting in the real world, you may have sensory input that comes in that affects the action of the machine, but that sensory input may be flawed. Perhaps there was glare that came in and prevented that camera from seeing what it needed to see. Um, uh, so I think the short, well, I'm no longer in the short answer <laughs> section, uh, but the the long answer to your question is I think that um, the computer science concern is how do you come up with a better model mm. so that you can anticipate more unexpected things so that you don't have as much ambiguity. Um, and I think that by lessening ambiguity, you may make much more clear any moral or ethical considerations or logistic concerns or issues of culpability by making it so clear. Um, yeah. That's prone to failure, of course, mm. because if you, if you designate such a rigid model, you may find that you've overlooked a particular context, which invalidates that. So, yeah. Yeah. And to me, that sounds exactly like the things that we encounter in, in human ethics and in um, human uh, legislation, right? Uh, you shall not murder is, is clear, it's simple, it's concise. We start to ask, what is murder? Is, you know, homicide, uh, involuntary manslaughter. We start getting into the nitty gritty and we end up with pages and pages of legislation that leave one saying, you know, well, is this person guilty of murder? Well, I don't know. I'm going to have to dig into this or, you know, consult a lawyer or uh, or just bring it to court and right. let some expert right. decide. Uh, and it seems that we look for, you know, simple guiding ethical principles, but we also find ourselves needing to legislate in increasing detail precisely in order to encapsulate these um, unusual and unexpected circumstances. But from my perspective, it doesn't seem that uh, humans and machines are all that far apart when it comes to the ability to perform better when things are predictable and the system is uh, closed and there are clear, simple guiding principles that work in those situations. And we tend to do less well when we're confronted with anomalous data, with the unexpected, or with something like an autonomous machine that doesn't fit our already existing legal categories. And so we're like, well, I don't know where this fits, so I don't know whether the car is guilty, the programmer is guilty, or who's guilty. And we may not be able to solve those issues to everyone's satisfaction, but we're certainly going to need laws to cope with them sooner rather than later, given where the technology is headed. Yeah, I think one of the interesting points that you brought up is uh, in, in what you were saying is the idea that even though humans may behave with equal lack of clarity in particular situations, uh, that is in many cases somehow totally fine, whereas we have a much higher standard of execution for a computer faced with a similar kind of circumstance. Um, it's, it's one of the interesting inconsistencies that we have to navigate if we're talking about legislation, um, just our perception of these machines, and what our goals are. I mean, and to a certain extent, that's a very natural uh, thought for us to have. I mean, we expect a hammer to be able to drive a nail better than we can. That's an expectation that we have of that tool. 
Um, and we are ascribing the notion of toolness, if you will, to all of these autonomous machines in much the same way. We're saying, okay, we have generated these machines that can compute things faster, and so we expect better reaction times, more precise calculation, um, the kind of decision-making that it would take a human being hours to decide on the best course of action. Say, for example, um, you know, well, okay, here's one really good example. We already allow driverless planes. We have two pilots sitting there, really just as an insurance policy against catastrophic situations. Those planes fly themselves, largely. Um, and uh, it's because no human being can calculate exactly where it needs to go at 580 miles an hour through a tiny window that's just above. They don't have the context or the the ability to see around the whole plane, and that's okay with us. We do this every day. Um, so, you know, we're okay with it in certain circumstances. I think what's happening is that we're not okay with it in every circumstance because we're still grappling with this tool notion and the fact that they should be better than us but not better than us at the same time, you know, so... Yeah, well, we've we've been talking for quite a while, and we tend to do that. And uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to work out, since this is uh, early in my time podcasting, just how long people are going to be willing to listen to a mm -hmm. podcast episode. And so I'm thinking that uh, even though we're barely scratching the surface of some of the things that we're excited about and talking about, uh, this might be a good place to end this episode. But... I fully expect that there'll be some comments and uh, feedback saying that this was really interesting and indeed we had just started to really get into it and the time had flown by. And so I hope that you'll be open to uh, continuing this conversation in another podcast, um, especially since as we continue the project together, we're going to hit on new angles. I mean, we didn't even get into the, some, of the, um, some of the things about... You know, uh, games and things like that where you know there are some other interesting angles and tangents and si um, side avenues that we want to explore. Mm -hmm. But for today, let me thank uh, Ankur for being here, a uh, guest on this uh, new podcast of mine, the Religion Prof Podcast. And uh, it's been a delight talking to you. I hope everybody else out there has enjoyed it as well. And uh, bye for now, and thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you.